Good morning. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, before we start, I need to offer a public correction. Uh, this is the first time I've preached since Chris was voted our new senior pastor. So I've not had an opportunity to speak. Some, some of you have noted that there are now two pastors at Trinity from Texas. Chris and I, and I need to clarify that. I'm from Texas. Chris is from Houston. They're they're different. They're very different. Um, And poor Kelly had the uh, unfortunate providence to be born in the second best state, Virginia. So... Um, Chris has acknowledged that to me. We've already had, we've already cleared the air. He knows that he's from Houston and not Texas. So, um, our our beloved interim Mike is leaving us uh, next week, and Chris is coming monthly to come preach to us. So you might be asking, what is the sermon series? And uh, the answer is, uh, there's only kind of a sermon series. We're just trying to fill in here. So uh, we're, we're doing a kind of series on Ephesians, okay? A kind of series on Ephesians. Chris has already been preaching through the prayers in Ephesians, and we're going to preach through Ephesians chapter 4 in May, okay? Ephesians 4 in May. So in light of this kind of series in Ephesians, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, to one of the most profoundly beautiful and complex portrayals of salvation in the whole Bible. So I, I believe in your bulletin, I think that's the NIV. Uh, I'm actually preaching from the ESV. So if you have an app, I'm going per, to uh, permit you to look at your phone. Trust here, there's trust. Uh, and if you'd pull up the ESV, ESV, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now, desperate that we might hear your words speak to us. Thank you that you do speak to us, that you show yourself, that you love to reveal yourself. And so would you give us a glimpse, Lord, of your heart, of your mind, especially in this great salvation that you've wrought for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to start with a little bonus point. This is just for free. So verses 3 through 14 are actually one long continuous sentence in the Greek. And commentators, it's a long sentence. Commentators have criticized Paul for his run-on sentence here. But I want to encourage you that run-on sentences are in the Bible, which means the Spirit wrote them. So just give that to a UVA prof the next time you get in trouble. <laughs> Grammar is a social construction, so just... <laughs> All right, but this really long sentence is incredibly packed, which is why no English translation uh, tries to make it into one sentence. And there's no way that I can do justice to to all 11 verses. Most preachers divide the section up into two to three sermons, but we don't have time for that, so we're going to do our best. So about 10 years ago, hashtag blessed kind of blew up. For those of you who don't understand, a hashtag is a number sign that, that goes before a word, and it has something to do with Twitter or Instagram. I don't know how it works. Uh, but here's how hashtag blessed works. You capture some element of your life in a phrase or a picture, and then you label it hashtag blessed. A picture of your cute toddlers or grandchildren, hashtag blessed. A group selfie at the beach, hashtag blessed. A carefully arranged plate of tacos on date night, hashtag blessed. Back in 2020, there were already over 118 million posts Hashtag blessed on Instagram. Now, there's something right about thankfulness, right? It is profoundly human and good to thank God for all his good gifts. But there's a performative danger in social media. One, one commentator put it, hashtag blessed can so easily become hashtag bragging. An opportunity to publicly declare some part of your life that's going really well so well you want others to see it. And there's a deeper danger that our conception of blessed might be emaciated. You see, our culture tends to define blessedness in, in two ways. Either it's circumstantial, right? A, a pay raise, scoring a new job, a bigger house, a new baby. Or, or it's emotional, like the joy of the euphoric moment. Hashtag blessed describes moments of wealth, of joy, of satisfaction. And, and contrast that with how Christ uses blessed. In Matthew and Luke, he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the hungry. Now, I don't think if, if Jesus was around today, I don't think that he would have an Instagram account. But if he did, I think his use of hashtag blessed might be a little mystifying to us. Maybe an empty plate. Hashtag blessed. So we need fresh eyes to see what is true blessedness. And Paul begins this sentence, and in fact, the whole book of Ephesians, beginning with this concept of blessedness. 
So we're going to ask three questions today. What is blessing? What are the blessings? And how do we become blessed? Okay, so what is blessing? What are the blessings? And how do we become blessed? The first question, what is blessing? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The scriptures have a radically different starting point for blessedness. They begin with God. The Bible portrays God as the creator, the giver of life, the fountain out of which flow all blessings. We already sang that this morning, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God has all life, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. God is the truly blessed one. The English language still holds uh, this meaning. One of the definitions of blessed is, is that it pertains to God. It means holy. So to be blessed is to be connected to God. And so that makes sense that then that the blessed are those who know God. They know the true blessed one. Psalm 1 begins, begins with, Blessed is the man whose delight is the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 continues, Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord. In other words, to be blessed is to orient yourself to the Lord, to be connected, to be in relationship with God. Blessed are those who know God, who walk with God, who obey God. And that's good news. Because our circumstances will fail us. Our mood will fail us. But God, if blessing is something that God does for us, then it is secure. It is objective. Blessing begins with God. The depressed can be blessed if they are in the Lord. The poor are blessed if they are in the Lord. Now, all through the biblical story, you need to know that God is pouring out his blessing on creation. It's what he does. He creates and then he blesses. He blesses his people. And it's true here. He is the first initiator of the blessing. Look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is blessing God back. Why? Who has blessed us. God is first blessed. And he's done it. In Christ and with the Spirit. The whole Trinity is here in verse 3. God the Father blesses all those in Christ with every spiritual, we should capitalize that spiritual blessing. That is the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity here is working to bless. Indeed, there would be no blessing, no salvation, if there was no Trinity. You know that the doctrine of the Trinity sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. And it is absolutely necessary for salvation. How are we saved? It is in Christ's vicarious death and resurrection for us. And Christ could not have paid our debt if he was not God and man. God and man. And how does that apply to us? It's by the Spirit who comes to us in Pentecost. You see, our salvation is necessarily this Trinitarian collaborative work to save us utterly. That's what differentiates us from even Judaism. 
or Islam. We have the Trinity, and the Trinity is the basis of blessing and salvation. And the Trinity here, verse 3, gives us a key to this long sentence. See, verses 3 through 6 focus on God the Father's part on planning salvation. Verses 7 through 12 then take the next part of the Son's redemption. And then the last two verses, 13 and 14, explain the Spirit's part. And each one of them, we know that this is divided into three, three sections because there is this, this common phrase after each one of them, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. And so I want you to envision this in three sections, and we're going to look at the blessings. Before we do that, Arguably, one of the greatest blessings to the English language is the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm sure you already knew that. The dictionary is particularly ambitious, for it seeks not only to define words, but to actually give the historical development of words. You need to read every word ever written in English from the beginning of the language until now. That's what they sought to do beginning in 1857 when they started this project. And so they put out all sorts of ads recruiting volunteers to read. They had up to 2,000 volunteers who were sending them in words and entries where they would find the word. Now, this began in 1857, as I said. It would not be finished until 1928, 71 years later. It took 71 years to write the first dictionary. But just looking at the dictionary, you would never know the breadth of collaboration, the painstaking years of planning, and the meticulous selection. And friends, that is what, that's what Paul is doing here. When you look at our salvation, you would never know the, the meticulous planning, the, the time, the, the epic efforts that went on within the Trinity to save us. And he's trying to show us what actually happened in our salvation, what was happening in God? That is what we're looking at in Ephesians 1. So, to be blessed, what is blessing? Blessing is nothing short of knowing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at each one of their blessings. There's a blessing connected to each person of the Trinity. So, part two, what are the blessings? First, the blessing of the Father's purposeful choice. The blessing of the Father's purposeful choice. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even as he, that is the Father, chose us, the church, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, I know what you're probably thinking on this point. Uh-oh. Predestination. Right? Those Calvinists. I was having such a lovely spring day. Why predestination? Um, if you don't like predestination, you're completely welcome here. And I promise you that your club is probably bigger than my club. Um, so some thoughts, though, here. First, God's choosing is all through the biblical story. God chose the Hebrews to be his people, not the Egyptians or the Philistines. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau, David over Saul. Jesus tells his disciples, 
You did not choose me. I chose you in John 15, 16. You could even say that God's choosing is the biblical story. It is the biblical story. And, and second of all, our, our passage is chock full of words that illuminate God's purpose and will. Do you see this? Look at verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. Verse 9. According to his purpose. Verse 11 is probably the most intense. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You get the sense that God meant for this to happen. You get the sense that God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. And this is really important for the Ephesians because in the Ephesians context, in, in, in Greek polytheism, it wasn't true that the gods were all-powerful. There are stories where Zeus, Zeus has to be subject to the fates. The fates are the one that hold time. And Paul is saying, Yahweh, the Lord, the triune God, is not like Zeus. His purposes will stand. You cannot throat, you cannot thwart the Lord's plan. That's why there's all this purpose. Predestination has historically gotten a bad rap. But here's what it means. It means that God is sovereign over all things. It means that his purpose will prevail. And the purpose of, the purpose of choice, the purposeful choice of God, means that justice will prevail. If God is not sovereign, then there is no hope for justice, for goodness, for righteousness, for beauty. And I know that our culture struggles with that. But friends, I think our culture craves purpose. Our culture craves purpose. The great psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, he, he pointed out that life is never made unbearable by circumstances. And he would know. He lived through the Holocaust. It's never made unbearable by circumstances. He says, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Friends, we live in an age where there is this hunger for purpose. And what God says is, I am the God of purpose. I am the God that purposes all things. That life drips with meaning. From the beginning of your day when you put on your slippers, go make your coffee, every moment has purpose because God has willed it. All of life is according to God's purpose. And that is also good news because Love is behind God's purposeful choice. You could even say that love is the purpose. Look at the, at the end of verse 4. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This purposeful choice is an expression of love. In love he predestined us into his family. Now, it says, as his sons, lest you think that Paul's being misogynistic, he's not. Because in Roman law, only sons have the right to inherit. And so what, what Paul is saying is that men and women, all of them, have the legal right to become the children of God, to become the legitimate heirs of God the Father. Now, it's striking that adoption becomes one of Paul's favored metaphors for salvation. 
because it's almost nowhere in the Old Testament. Now, God does refer to Israel, his people, as his son. And yet Paul is doing some creative reinterpretation, saying, if God is now letting in the Gentiles, there must be this adoption that God is saying, hey, come into the family. If Jesus, who is the son, gets all, all that God has planned, then we who believe in Jesus are made sons and daughters of the living king. Adoption. That is bringing children into our families. Friends, we as the Christian church at 21st Century America, we need to be about adoption, real adoption. That is bringing children into our families. There is a global orphan crisis, especially for children with disabilities, like me. Our adoption ministry here at Trinity is one of the most exciting things happening here. It's a place for all those who are touched by foster care and adoption. There's resources if you want to adopt. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. When God calls us to, to be like him, and he adopts. And so we as Christians need to be about adopting. Adopt. That, that's not just formal adoption, although it should be for some of us. But it's also ad- having, having a sense of hospitality for all those who we come in contact with. So adoption. There's actually a meeting here today after the service today if you're interested in adoption. That ministry is meeting Roger Church. Now, verse 6 ends this section. It's our first praise. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's purposeful choice is all about grace. It's all by grace. We did not deserve this royal adoption, and yet the Lord's grace chose to bless us anyway. We become beloved just as Christ is beloved. Now, and with that, Paul switches to the next person in the Trinity. So we have... The Father's purposeful choice. Now let's go to the Son. The blessing of the Son's blood-paid redemption. The Son's blood-paid redemption. We see this in verse 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness for our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Now in our, in our moment, redemption, is, redemption happens to coupons and sports teams, Right? The Greek word here was most commonly used for a, the redemption of a kidnapped person or a slave by the payment of a ransom. This kind of redemption was what God does in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Exodus. In Exodus 6.6, 6, God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you. He says, I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you. God redeems his people from slavery. And that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us. The blessing that he bestows on us in redemption. Now, redemption from what? We see this in the next phrase. And here we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses. That's transgression, sins. Ephesians 2, right after this, will clarify that we are actually enslaved to three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. 
but Christ's blood, it says we, are, we have redemption through his blood. Christ's blood is actually the ransom paid that we might be free from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are not enslaved anymore. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 6. The blood of Christ redeems us from slavery. Uh, Venture Smith, Venture Smith, was born in the 1720s, the son of a West African prince. He was captured as a boy at age six by slave traders and sold into slavery in the American colonies. He had several owners and was separated for a time from his wife, Meg, and his kids. But he eventually saved up enough money to purchase his own freedom. And then he earned enough money to buy his wife and every one of his children out of slavery. By age 46, he says, he'd already, this is a quote quote from Venture, I'd already redeemed from slavery myself, my wife, and three children, besides three Negro men. As an old man, Venture would write, Amidst all my griefs and pains, I have many consolations. Meg, the wife of my youth, whom I married for love and bought with my money, is still alive. My freedom is a privilege which nothing else can equal. Isn't that beautiful? My wife, whom I married for love and bought with my own money. Friends, that is how Jesus, he can declare that about us. That he married us for love and he bought us with his own, not money, his blood, giving his life for us. We have been purchased and redeemed. And friends, this is an incredible blessing. It's an incredible blessing. This is what it means to be blessed, to have your sins forgiven. Friends, we labor under stricken consciences, guilt. But in Christ, in Christ, that guilt is tossed away. As far as east is from the west, that is what it means to be redeemed. That is blessing. The son's blood spilled redemption. And this too, Paul says, look at the end of verse 7, is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Friends, you cannot, you cannot out-sin the lavishness of God's grace. Now let's look at the Spirit here. The Spirit's irrevocable sealing. That's the third blessing here. We have the Father's purposeful choice, the Son's blood-spilled redemption, and finally the Spirit's irrevocable sealing. We see this in verse 13. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, when you believe the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We still have seals. Seals on beverages and medicine that ensure no one is tampered with the product. Less frequently, mail is sealed still with a sign revealing who is the sender. Each person had a specific sign. And in the New Testament, seals are used similarly 
to closing up a scroll. They were used to authenticate, to mark ownership, and even to provide protection. It's an intentionally rich metaphor for the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit also authenticates and marks ownership. Remember, you were chosen for adoption. And so one of the things the Spirit does is it speaks to your spirit and says, you are a child of God. It says in Romans, in Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit's sealing prevents tampering, and it protects us. It's like in Harry Potter. Lily Potter sacrifices her life, that, that's Harry's mother, sacrifices her life to save the infant Harry from Voldemort. But Voldemort kills Lily, Harry's mother. And as he turns to kill Harry, he does the spell, and yet something happens that he never anticipated. The spell that's supposed to wipe Harry out actually wipes him out. And Dumbledore explains to Harry what happened. He says, quote, Your mother died to save you. If there's one thing that Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. I, I, know, it's, I know it's Harry Potter. <laughs> like, she's on to something there. She's on to something. There's something, a Christian truth there, that when she sacrifices her life, there is this power that comes over Harry, that protects him. It's a mark. And that is what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit marks us and protects us so that no one, no one can snatch us from the Lord. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That is the, that is the, the irrevocable sealing of the Spirit. And that sealing of the Spirit is also a down payment. Like, it's, there's more to come. There is more to come. What does this mean, the Spirit's sealing of our inheritance? Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know him as a 18th century theologian, uh, colonial pastor. His first recorded sermon, his first recorded sermon, it beats the pants off mine. But here's what he says. He makes three points. He makes three points. He says, the true Christian can be truly happy. Why? Regardless of circumstances. The true Christian. He says, no worldly evils can do him any real hurt first. Second of all, he gets to experience blessings now. And then he says, and finally, what little beginnings of pleasure we have now are only going to get better. They're only going to get better. That is what the sealing of the Spirit does. Every spiritual blessing, it says every spiritual blessing we have in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So finally, one last question. How do we access this blessing? In other words, what's our part? What do we do? Did you notice who is blessing and choosing and redeeming and forgiving and lavishing grace? and Who is doing all that? It's, it's, the, it's God. 
It's God. The Father chose us in Christ. The Father redeemed us in Christ. The Father sealed us in Christ with the Spirit. God the Father is the principal actor doing all of these things. So again, what's our part? What's our part? Did you catch it? The two verbs, there's two verbs in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. All we do is hear and believe. Here in this passage. Hear and believe. Bible scholar S.M. Baus puts it aptly. He says, quote, time and again, Paul emphasizes God's initiative in planning, ordaining, executing, and then revealing our redemption. In fact, the only thing that we contribute is hearing and believing. And these are themselves the reception of grace. In other words, God does it all. The technical theological word is monergism. That regeneration is, is God's work alone. The only thing we do is receive by believing. It's absurd, right? Every spiritual blessing. And all we do is just believe. This cosmic salvation story with epic sacrifice, this massive inheritance, and all we do is receive and believe. But in that receiving and believing, something happens. The sealing of the Spirit actually enacts this union with Christ that cannot be reversed. Like a cascading waterfall, Paul uses prepositional phrase after prepositional phrase. Did you hear it? To help us see this. He says, we are in Christ, verse 3. He chose us in him, verse 4. We're adopted through Jesus Christ, verse 5. We've been blessed in the beloved, verse 6. Time and again, what Paul is trying to drive home is that if you want to be saved, you have to be united to Christ. You have to be in him. You have to be through him. How do we receive these benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten son? John Calvin asks. And listen to John Calvin's answer. He says, as long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. To share with us what he has received from the Father, he has to become ours and dwell within us. For this reason, he is called our head. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. And this only happens by faith. Do you hear that? All of these blessings God gives to us in union with Christ. If you have Jesus, you have it all. Every spiritual blessing. On October 14, 1971, perhaps the most expensive party began in the Iranian desert. The Shah was arranging for a celebration of the 2,500-year anniversary of the Persian dynasty. They constructed a city in the middle of the desert. In fact, the Shah imported trees from France and planting up to 15,000 trees. The dresses worn were customized, tailored only by French tailors. And the total cost of the three-day party was $635 million. $635 million. Now, you might rightfully raise concern about the ethics of such an affair, right? Such an elaborate display of riches and even waste in a poor country where many are barely at 
subsistence. It was a rich party for the rich. But friends, what if you were invited to such a party? You are. That's what Ephesians 1 is saying. Every spiritual blessing. And yet this is not a party for the rich. This is a party for anyone who wants to believe in Jesus. Who wants to be united to him. God has spared no expense. God has spared no expense, even his son's life, to pour out blessing upon us. That is what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is to know the Lord and all of his goodness and love for us. And this is no three-day party. This is eternity. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, would we taste that? Would our hearts be moved by that reality? Would we be moved to worship? We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.